Hello and welcome to the Righteous Remnant podcast. If you'd like to support our ministry or find out more about us, you can do so at therighteousremnant.org. All right, welcome to the Righteous Remnant podcast. This week, we are going to be tackling um, a, a difficult topic, okay? We're going to talk about hell this week, and it's because I think this is one of the most important doctrines in the Bible. It is really at the center of almost every other doctrine flows out from this doctrine. Like, why should you believe any of the others? Um, usually the way that Christianity is presented is because if you don't believe this, then you're going to end up in hell forever, right? And I think this is pretty obvious to everyone. Um, I've been digging into deconstruction stories over the past couple weeks, and really it's, it's something that I've been interested in the past couple years because what we've seen is that Christians deconstructing their faith has exploded over the past couple years. I was first really alerted to this because so many prominent Christian musicians started to publicly deconstruct their faith. And if you're not familiar with that terminology, it really just means to start to question um, a lot of the core doctrines that you kind of took for granted. I mean, these people are, grew up in the church, but they never really received satisfying answers for many of these questions. And those doubts nod at them until they went through a season where their intimacy with God really started to struggle, and then and then these, you know, logical inconsistencies that you know where their logic you know didn't mesh with the scriptures well. The scriptures didn't seem logical to them in these areas, and they never really had those. All of a sudden, become super relevant when you go through a season when you're really struggling in your relationship with the Lord. Okay, and um, and I tend to think that. There are a number of these issues that are pretty prominent. When I look at deconstruction narratives, I hear the same things come up again and again, right? I hear um, homosexuality come up again and again, right? It bothered many of these people that for years, you know, gays were rejected by the church. Um, I hear um, Old Testament... um, judgments from the Lord really bother people, right? The Canaanite genocide, um, the flood, um, questioning Jesus's resurrection. Was that, you know, did that actually happen? Um, and then one you're going to hear all the time is eternal torment is hell. And um, I think this is an area where they're really, we need to do some development here in the church, okay? And that's because I would say 90% of the Christians that I know and I talk to don't really understand why eternal torment is good. And it might be much higher than that. You know, it's probably closer to 98%. Meaning it's the rare exception where I will talk to somebody about eternal torment and they'll be like, oh, it's so good. Right, even just say that. Like, I think most of the people listening to this can understand. Like, yeah, like almost nobody, almost no Christian, can say I fully understand why God eternally torments, you know, sinners in hell. Like that makes perfect sense to me. For the vast majority of Christians, it is. I don't understand it. That would be their position, right? I don't really understand it. I don't understand why that's fair, why that's good, or why that's just. Um, but it seems to be what the scriptures say. And so I just trust that 
I'll understand eventually in time. Right? This is an area where the vast majority of Christians are saying, hey, I'm going to trust God in this area, even though I don't quite understand it. And I have great respect for that position because that has been my position you know, for, for my entire Christian life. You know? So I totally understand that position. Um, but implicit in that position is this idea that we're not seeing why this doctrine is good. We're not seeing why it makes sense. And, um, and I think... You know, it wasn't until for me, until I got to seminary, that I really started to explore other positions, right? Universalism, which is the belief that everyone essentially is saved, eventually is saved, okay? That's universalism. And then annihilationism, also known as conditional immortality. Um, And when I studied annihilationism, honestly, I was actually shocked. I was actually shocked. Because the first time I studied this issue in seminary, I actually thought that the biblical argument was extremely strong. And I was I was shocked that I had never heard um like a serious case for it before in my Christian life. I'd never heard a pastor um or a leader make the case for annihilationism in any of the sermons that I'd listened to, in any of the articles that I had read. I'd never heard it before. And that's shocking to me because I've, you know, obviously I've heard so many sermons on so many different things, so many articles, so many even discussions or suggestions. Like I'd heard about so many other issues. I'd never heard about this issue. And I was shocked at how strong the biblical argument seemed to me. And since then, I have done multiple studies on annihilationism. Um, and every time I feel like the the evidence is extremely strong. I still feel like it's extremely strong. Okay, so where I am at today, I am currently undecided on this issue. Okay, there are a handful of issues like, you know, should women be pastors? That's one I've done a lot of studies on. I'm still not sure. Okay, this is one of those issues. I am not sure. Okay, now I do at this point lean towards annihilationism. I think that it has the stronger biblical argument, and I think it has the stronger logical argument, okay? Um, I am not a committed annihilationist, and the reason is because it, on something like this, obviously this is a very important issue, and I have a great deal of respect for church tradition, meaning that eternal torment, the belief that God eternally punishes and torments the wicked forever— um, has been the majority position in the church um, throughout its history. So I am not going to quickly overthrow that, right? So I don't feel any pressure to come out one way or the other or something like that. I don't feel any pressure to be like, oh, I've got to declare myself. No, I'm perfectly content to be in this position where, I, hey, I'm not sure, and I'm investigating it. And I have done that for many different issues. Um, for a long time, I was unsure about Calvinism versus Arminianism. Um, and I was happy to be in that place for quite a while, and I did many different studies of that issue, and eventually I arrived at a place where I'm like, no, I feel pretty confident saying that I think Calvinism is wrong, okay? And I established myself as an Armenian, okay? Um, I'm not there with this issue yet, okay? So my point in laying all this out at the beginning is I'm not really trying to push 
for an annihilationist perspective. What I am trying to do is expose people to the perspective because I think in exposing more and more people to the perspective, then what we get is a more robust discussion. And the truth is this, I want to see more evidence for either side um, that maybe I currently do not see, all right? Now, I will also you know, share that this, the reason why this is a really tough episode is because for many people, um, they, many Christians, they would consider this not a minor issue of doctrine, that this would be a major issue of doctrine, okay? Now, I think that that's very wrong, all right? Um, there are some prominent people who, prominent Christian leaders who have been annihilationists or at least open to annihilationism. Um, some of the more famous ones, right, John Stott um, was an annihilationist who's a very well-respected um, biblical theologian and teacher in the body of Christ. Um, I studied a number of Stott's works not on this issue, on other on other issues um, when I was in seminary. He's well-regarded. And then you have leaders like um, Francis Chan today. Francis Chan has, you know, publicly said that annihilationism is possible, right? So he's open to it. I don't know where he is on the spectrum of, you know, sure about it or not sure about it. Um, Michael Heiser, who recently passed away, um, who is a theologian who has become pretty influential over the past, I'd say the past 10 years, um, being featured in a lot of the Bible Project videos, if you're familiar with those, um, he has stated that he thinks annihilation annihilationism is is likely. Um, so there's a lot of leaders out there. I'm obviously I'm just picking a handful, but there's there's a lot more that are you know hold to these views and that are generally recognized as established Christian leaders in the church. So I I think this really should be understood as a minor issue of doctrine, um, at least as it comes to annihilationism. Um, universalism, which is the belief that everyone is eventually saved, um, I can understand, you know, the case there that, you know, that was really a type of heresy. Um, I, I'm not sure if it should be considered heresy, but I, I definitely think the biblical argument for that position is extremely weak, in my opinion, okay? All right, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to lay out the basic case for annihilationism, because I feel like most people have not really been exposed to the case for it. All right. And um, then all I'm going to do is I'm going to say, like, I would actually appreciate if you have evidence that you feel like I have not considered, um, if you would like to be part of a discussion, I would encourage you to reach out to me. Um, because one of the things that we are trying to do at The Righteous Remnant is try to host more roundtable discussions. I would eventually like to do a roundtable discussion on this issue, because I really do think that in discussion, what we do is we, you know, we allow our ideas to clash, um, and as long as it's done in the right spirit, which is a spirit of honor for one another, of love, of humility, then it can really help our understanding, and that's where I'm at. I really want to grow in understanding in this area. Okay, so let's talk about annihilationism, okay? All right, so what is it? Annihilationism is the belief that the eternal state of the wicked is not eternal torment, but a cessation of existence, meaning God destroys them completely and they cease to exist. So the idea is that, you know, somebody dies... And then, you know, popular belief is their soul goes to heaven or to hell, all right? Now, that's very possible, but all of this would be an interim period, okay? So this is just until the resurrection of the dead, all right? Then there's 
a resurrection of the dead where everybody comes back to life and is tried at the judgment, right? The great white throne judgment. And then the wicked are thrown into the lake of fire, okay? And then the traditional position is that they're tormented forever in the lake of fire, whereas the annihilationist position is that the lake of fire represents annihilation. So they may be tormented for a period of time, but eventually they are annihilated. Okay, that is annihilationism. Now, the annihilationist position will acknowledge that there could be periods of torment prior to the annihilation. Okay, so, you know, a person could potentially suffer for 10 billion years, could be tormented for 10 billion years before he is annihilated. That is possible under the annihilationist um, position. And, um, you know, I think that I think that makes a lot of sense because a lot of people are going to make the argument that one of the main problems with annihilationism is that it's too merciful, right? That it's um, it takes all of the fear out of the gospel, right? There's no fear anymore um, because if everybody's just eliminated, well, then that's what a lot of people want. A lot of people would just like to be, you know, annihilated completely. And so why should they even follow Jesus? Um, but... Part of the annihilationist position is that it's possible that God could torment people for extremely long periods of time. Okay, so I don't know that I would retreat to that and say, you know, you know, I, I don't think it's fair to accuse annihilationists of being soft, you know, on the judgment of God or something like that. Because if potentially every single, you know, non-Christian is tormented for 10 billion years, you know, obviously it's an arbitrary number, um, I don't know how you can make the argument that that's not harsh enough. <laughs> Seems pretty harsh to me, okay? Now, it is also possible that there, you know, could be no period of torment, right? I guess that is also a, a potential, like, that's potentially possible under the annihilationist position. Yeah, um, but the, the only point I'm making is that it's possible, right? If we're just talking about the position, hey, then we can have a separate debate on whether the, you know, if the annihilationist position is true, do people receive long periods of torment or short periods of torment? You know, like, you can have that debate. My only my only case to bring it up is that I've experienced, you know, some of that accusation myself in entertaining this theory. And um, I just don't think it's, a, I don't think it's an honest or fair accusation, right? Like, no, I I think if I had to be, you know, if I had to guess, I would say that yes, some people will receive long and serious um, punishment. I, I think there's a reason to fear hell, okay? I think hell should be feared. I think scripture is explicitly clear on that. And I do not think that the annihilationist position eliminates that fear or that it should if it's properly understood, okay? All right. Um, the last thing I'll say as an introduction to this issue is that, you know, one of my journeys in theology has been to appreciate and honor Jewish culture and Jewish history. So to give a little background of that, you know, when I went to seminary, um, first of all, I had been told I need to go to seminary. I was pastor. I was already a pastor at a church, you know, and in Korean culture, especially, they really emphasize that pastors need to go to seminary. And, um, you know, I prayed about it and I really felt like the Lord said, do not go, you know, do not go to seminary. And so I did not go for a long time. And then um, I had an, I had an encounter with the Lord where he spoke to me. It was one of the clearest words I ever heard from the Lord where he spoke to me. 
And he said, now is the time. Um, move to Texas and, and go to seminary. And that encounter happened when Jack Hayford, who's the founder of King's University and Seminary, he was sharing about the King's University. He was giving kind of an advertisement for it at this conference I was at. And when he was sharing, the Holy Spirit just came on me really strong and spoke to me really clearly. And this was a, this was after a period where I had not heard clearly from the Lord for over a year. And I was praying desperately, you know, for direction. And I had not heard the Lord for over a year. And then all of a sudden, very strong and very clear, the Lord speaks to me and said, now's the time, move to Texas and go, you know, go to seminary at the King's University. And so that's, you know, how I started going to um, King's University for seminary. And um, my, you know, first or second semester in seminary, I saw, it was the second semester, um, I took the introduction to Messianic Judaism. And, um, you know, that class was really interesting to me because the professor at the very, the first day of class, he said, you know, he made the statement that all of the Jewish, all of the the apostles of Christ, the 12 disciples, they all kept the law of Moses until the day they died. And when he made that statement, immediately I said, no, that's wrong. I can think of like four or five scriptures off the top of my head that contradict that. And I stayed in the class because I wanted to hear, you know, all of the his arguments and everything. And basically by the end of that class, I was convinced that I was actually wrong. He was correct. And what that class did for me is it helped me understand I had been seriously misunderstanding a number of these passages because I didn't understand Jewish culture. And I didn't understand, um, I didn't have a, a real working knowledge of Second Temple Judaism. And so because of that, I had misunderstood a number of these passages that I just assumed I understood correctly. And um, that really led me down a path where I, I started studying everything having to do with Messianic Judaism. I took every Messianic Jewish class I could when I was in seminary, and I found that those classes were extremely helpful for me in coming to understand Jewish culture. And so the place where I'm at right now is I tend to think that understanding Jewish culture in particular and the Old Testament in its own context is essential to properly understanding the New Testament. And what I think is that there is an arrogance in the church that I had for sure, um, where, you know, we have this theology about, you know, progressive revelation. And that's the idea that God revealed stuff going forward in the future that helps us understand the past. And I, I believe that there is truth to that idea, okay, for sure. Um, but one of the ways that that, you know, doctrine has been misunderstood and misapplied is what we do is we we have made up interpretations of New Testament passages um, that do not align with the Old Testament. And what we've done is say, well, that's because they didn't understand in the Old Testament these things, but now we do. And what we've done is we've injected understanding the scripture that are really foreign to the Jewish mindset and, the Jew- and Jewish culture. And um, we did that because we were ignorant of Jewish culture, and um, we did that wrongly, okay? So that's my, this is my theological bias. There's a lot of issues that fall into this category. Calvinism is one of those issues, right? I think Calvinism is a made-up doctrine by Gentiles, non-Jews, you know, living in the church period. They were trying to understand Jewish texts, but did not understand them, and so they made up new interpretations, all right? I think that's what Calvinism is. You don't see Calvinism in the Old Testament. It's not in the Old Testament, okay? And um, even John Piper will admit that, that 
election, Calvinistic election, you can't find it in the Old Testament. And that's because we invented that, meaning Christians. Gentile Christians invented that. And I think that's this is exactly what Paul warns about in Romans 11, where he warns Jewish believers not to become arrogant towards the Jewish branches. That's Romans 11. Um, and um, I think that's exactly what we did. So the reason why I bring all this up is because if we're going to understand annihilationism, we should understand that generally speaking, Jews are annihilationists. Okay, And the reason is because in the Old Testament, the overwhelming majority of the language used to describe the fate of the wicked is annihilation type of language. Okay, It's destruction, it's perishing, it's vanishing, it's disappearing, it's there will be no trace of them, there will be no more of them. That type of language pervades the Old Testament, which is why the Jews had developed this, this theology of the end times, believing that most of the wicked would no longer exist. And even, I, I would argue, when you look at the New Testament, and the passages that speak about the fate of the wicked, almost all of them are quoting Old Testament passages. And it's our misunderstanding of the Old Testament, our lack of understanding about the Old Testament, that makes us create new interpretations that are really foreign to the Jewish mindset. Okay, And in fact, the reason we have to under appreciate Jewish culture and Jewish history is because Christianity grew up in a... The best way to understand it is this, in the early church, like towards the beginning of the first century, the vast majority of Christians were Jews. Like Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, and, you know, I think 3,000 Jews are added to the church. So the early church is all Jews. But what happens is the gospel starts to explode amongst the Gentiles. And we read about that in the book of Acts, specifically um, with Paul's journeys. Okay, with Paul's journeys, what we see is that the 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 spirit is poured out, and miracles and signs and wonders and power is given to the apostles, and it's breaking out primarily amongst the Gentiles. So by the end of the first century, the church is predominantly Gentile. Okay, and and that goes on. If you know some of early church history, what happens is that the early leaders of the church are all Jews, but by the third century. All leadership is Gentile. And in fact, what starts to happen is there even starts to become persecution towards Jews, right? Like if a Jew wants to become a Christian, they have to prove that they're no longer a Jew. They have to eat pork and stuff like that to show that they no longer follow the law of Moses and all this, you know. And this is a separate issue. Um, but the reason why I bring it up is because what happens is these Gentiles start to become the leaders of the church and start to interpret the scriptures from a more Gentile perspective. And specifically, the Gentiles of that era, these were Greek thinkers. These were these are people who are highly influenced by Hellenistic Greek thought, okay? Guys like Plato and Aristotle, okay? And it was really Hellenistic belief. It was Greek thought that believed that the soul was immortal, all right? Greeks believed the soul was immortal, would live forever, Generally speaking, Jews did not, okay? Generally speaking, Jews considered that um, the Jewish mindset was more about the resurrection of the dead. And that was a big debatable topic in Jesus' time. There's a huge controversy over it between the Sadducees 
and the Pharisees, they, one of their main areas of difference was that Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection of the dead, but that Pharisees did believe in a resurrection of the dead. Okay, And again, resurrection is a very important topic in the New Testament, but even most Christians today don't really get what the significance of resurrection is. Because we tend to think when we die, our spirits go to heaven and live forever in heaven. That's the popular understanding. But that is not a Jewish nor a biblical understanding. Okay? That's not where the Bible puts the emphasis, at least. Okay? And then to be clear, I do think there's a sense in which our souls go to heaven when we die. All right? I think that's probably how it's going to work. But all of that is still intermediate state. All right? That's until Christ returns. When Christ returns, with the sound of a trumpet, the dead shall rise, and we get reconstituted in bodies. All right? And 1 Corinthians 15 is all about this topic, about the resurrection of the dead. Most Christians don't understand 1 Corinthians 15. They're, they're, they, don't, they haven't heard much teaching or preaching on it. Because, again, it's part of it's not part of the Hellenistic Greek paradigm of the eternal nature of souls. Right? And this is, you know, Plato. Plato taught that upon death, the soul is released from the body. The body is evil and corrupt and filled with base desires. And so when the soul escapes the body, it goes on to eternal bliss. And it and that is still the predominant, you know, paradigm of most Christians living today. That's far more Greek in its understanding than it is Jewish. Okay? And I bring that up because this is closely related to the idea of hell. Okay, we imagine our souls you know, going to one of two places, which is either you go to heaven and you enjoy some kind of like eternal drug trip, right? You're, you're in blissful joy, you know, eternally, or you go to hell where you're tormented forever. And this is far closer to the Platonic understanding of the afterlife than it is to the Jewish biblical understanding of the afterlife, okay? And so I say that because all of my study in trying to recover a more Jewish perspective of the scriptures has contributed to me giving much more credence to the idea of annihilationism, because it is. Most Jews today, talking about Orthodox Jews, are annihilationists, right? They believe that, you know, the unrighteous will be annihilated by the Lord, okay? And there's a reason why they believe that, because that's where the Old Testament strongly suggests, right? The the Old Testament strongly suggests that, okay? All right. All of that is my introduction. Sorry for taking so long. I am a wordy person. <laughs> but it's one of the reasons why I like podcasts because, you know, like you can listen to 30 minutes now and 30 minutes later and <laughs> you can be doing this for a while, okay? All right. What I, The way I want to structure this podcast is this. What I'm going to do is now I'm going to get into the biblical argument, okay? Because I think the biblical argument is far more important than the rational argument. Okay, we are going to get into the rational argument after the biblical argument, but the biblical argument is more important because our logic is flawed. Okay, as Christians, I think we have to admit that that we cannot believe in something just because it seems more reasonable or more logical to us, because our reason and our logic are influenced by our culture, by the prevailing you know morals of the time, and I think we can all admit that the prevailing morality in America is very hostile to the scriptures. So I do not think 
we should allow ourselves to believe something just because it seems more logical, we really have to say, well, what does the Bible say about this? I think the Bible should be our final understanding of right and wrong. I think we do need to trust the scriptures, even when the scriptures do not seem to be right to us. Even when it seems like the scriptures are wrong, I think it's right for us to trust them as our final authority. Okay? So that's the position where I'm coming from. All right. Point one, when it comes to the biblical evidence, what does the biblical evidence say? Um, 95% of the language in the Bible, when it talks about the eternal fate of the wicked, uses annihilation language. Okay? It uses language of death, destruction, perishing, vanishing, all this kind of stuff. Now, what we have done in Christianity is we have taught essentially that when you read that kind of stuff, you should put a filter on it, right? You should understand that when the Bible talks about the wicked being destroyed by God, that's the language that it uses to actually mean eternally tormented, right? We, we, we run it through an auto filter in our minds and we refilter it to make it say eternal torment. I would like everyone to consider that it makes much better sense actually if we understand it as being actual destruction. <laughs> That's actually what it says, right, in a lot of these passages. Um, I'm just going to give a handful, but the, the reality is there's so many passages, there's no way, all right? Okay, in Psalm 34, 16, it says, it talks about how evildoers will be cut off from the earth. We will remember them no more, okay? That's Psalm 9, also talks about they will not even be remembered. It will be as though they had never been, <laughs> okay? Um, Psalm 37 talks about they will fade like grass. They will wither like the green herb, okay? Psalm, it, it goes on to say they will be cut off and will be no more. Though you look diligently for their place, they will not be there, all right? And it contrasts that with the righteous who will abide forever, all right? The wicked will perish um, they will, like smoke, they will vanish away, all right? There's so many scriptures like this, right? Psalm 1 talks about they'll be like chaff that the wind blows away. And the idea is that they're they're gone completely, okay? Um, Proverbs 10, the wicked are no more, right? Proverbs 12, the wicked are overthrown and are no more, the, the evil have no future. The lamp of the wicked will go out. That's, Psalms, that's Proverbs 24. Okay? Um, this type of language is all over the place in the Old Testament. In fact, it's only. It, it never talks about the wicked being tormented forever. Okay? There is, you know, a verse that we're going to talk about in Isaiah. Okay, there's a verse that uses that type of language, but we have to read it in its context to understand what it's talking about. And that's actually the verse that gets quoted in the New Testament. Okay, so we're going to get into some of that stuff. But I want us to understand that the vast majority, okay, 95% or more of the language used to describe the fate of the wicked, it's all destruction, annihilation language. Okay, it's really, we have to look at the couple of exceptions where it doesn't seem to sound like that. Those are the ones we really have to analyze because most of it, it, it points more towards annihilation, in my opinion, okay? Now, to be clear, that's the Old Testament, but it's also true in the New Testament, okay? The majority of references to the fate of the wicked in the New Testament are also annihilation language. 
Okay? So, for example, in Matthew 3, Jesus or John the Baptist proclaims that every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Okay? And again, like we're we're taught to kind of run that through our theology of eternal torment. And so we assume, oh, that it's speaking about, you know, hell and how people are going to burn forever. Okay? But that doesn't really match. I mean, it's possible. That's a possible interpretation. But the analogy he's using is a tree being thrown to the fire, branches being thrown into the fire, okay? And when we understand that, the more logical interpretation is that they're burned up, they're, they're destroyed, okay? Um, and that language is used again and again and again, right? Um, John goes on to say that the Messiah will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire, Right? And Jesus himself uses that language of unquenchable or, you know, a consuming fire, an all-consuming fire. That language is used again and again in the New Testament, speaking about the fate of the wicked. And um, we have to understand why it's using that language. The The traditional way that that's been interpreted is that it's a, it's a fire that continues to burn someone forever. But I would argue, I think that's actually a misunderstanding of the unquenchable or the all-consuming nature of this fire of judgment, okay? And that's because there are several scriptures that talk about this unquenchable fire, and the reason why it's unquenchable is because nothing can stop the fire from completely consuming that which is set on fire, okay? That's really closer to the understanding of how the Bible is talking about that unquenchable fire in many of these passages, and we're going to get into some of those, but the New Testament talks about some of those. We can start with Hebrews, okay? Like Hebrews 6 talks about the wicked being consumed in the fire, all right? That's Hebrews 6, also in Jude 7, and in both those passages are really quoting from Isaiah 33. We have to get into Isaiah, which we will a bit later, all right? Jesus talks about the wide gate that leads to destruction versus the narrow gate that leads to life, right? This destruction is contrasted with life, right? Um, And Jesus also says, do not fear men who can only kill your bodies, but fear the Lord who can destroy both your soul and your body in hell, okay? And again, there's an analogy here. Don't fear men who can only destroy your body, but fear the Lord who can destroy both body and soul, all right? Again, it's the language of destruction, Um James talks about how God is able to save and destroy. Peter teaches that destruction awaits false, greedy teachers. Um, I would encourage you, I'm reading off of an article here from Greg Boyd. Now, Greg Boyd um, is a teacher. He teaches, you know, he teaches some stuff that I would disagree with. Um, But to be honest, that's true of a lot of pastors, you know. Um, I think his article on annihilationism is extremely good. And I'm referencing, I'm using it um, to help me, you know, with all of these passages, because there's so many scriptures, he does a good job of cataloging a lot of them. Okay, so you can Google that if you want to read the article. Um, Philippians talks about how enemies of the cross have destruction as their final end. That's Philippians 3, right? 1 Corinthians 3 talks about if anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy that person, okay? I'm only listing all of these to show that that language of destruction, that is the most common way that the scriptures talk about the fate of the wicked, Okay? It's almost always destruction or perishing, right? Um, Jesus uses that terminology of perishing, right, in John 3, right? Um, 
everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Okay, um, in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul talks about those who are being saved are the smell of death to those who are perishing, right? The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. That's Romans 6, all right? All of this, I think, lends itself more to, uh, it's more natural to interpret all of this as annihilation, okay? All right, there's, there's many more, but I don't want to go into every single passage. That'd be impossible. I think it's pretty pretty obvious. Okay, pretty obvious. If we look up a lot of these passages, the language is destruction, perishing, death, you know, cessation of existence type of language. Okay. And then what we have to do is run that through a filter um, because we believe in eternal torment um, to interpret that as eternal torment. Okay. Getting back to the fire that consumes. All right. This idea um, is is talked about. I want to, you know, we went into Hebrews six a little bit. I want us to look at Hebrews ten because this is the language that really um, lays it out in the New Testament. And it says this: Hebrews ten twenty six. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Okay, um, Peter talks about this consuming fire in reference to Sodom and Gomorrah, okay? And what he says is that, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an example of what will happen to the wicked, all right? And the picture that we see in Sodom and Gomorrah is that the the fire of God's raining and it consumes them completely, right? And again, that's saying that's the example of what will happen to the wicked, all right? It's not like we have any anything in the Bible that talks about, you know, the people of Sodom being consumed by this fire and, excuse me, and being tormented by this fire, and but they remain alive and they're constantly in pain, you know, until today or something like that, right? There's not, no, no, the, the clear assumption is that the fire came and destroyed them completely. And Peter's using that as an example of that. They serve as an example of what will happen, right, to the ungodly or the wicked, okay? And so, I think that that's a much better understanding, and that idea of complete consumption um, is is really important, actually. And you know, to us, it doesn't make sense. I think because we tend to think of you know fire. If 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 people get burned with any normal fire, they get completely consumed. <laughs> so what's this? Name is why does the Bible keep talking about this unquenchable fire that will consume the enemies of God? And if I had to guess, I think that's because the idea that is that it consumes also immortal bodies. Because the devil and and fallen angels and such are also thrown into this fire. And the idea is that their bodies are also completely consumed. Okay? I think this is a part that, you know, we tend to be, you know, as humans, hu- human-centric. But I th- what I think we should understand is that the scriptures were also written for the sake of these um, other beings, these spiritual beings. And I think that's where a lot of the significance of that language is, this unquenchable fire that will consume the enemies of God. I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, warning the powers, right, of what's going to happen to them. And by the way, if we look at passages like Psalm 82, Psalm 82, is, for example, is written to these divine powers, to the powers in heaven. And it warns them that their fate, right, if they do not obey the Lord, they do not repent of their sin. Okay, their fate is the that they will die like mere mortals. That's that's their warning that they're going to die like men. Okay, and again, that's relevant because if you, I'm imagining, I'm because I'm not, but if you are an immortal 
spiritual being, a power, you know, in heaven, a prince of heaven, you can't die by normal fire, right? But that's why the warning is, no, this is the unquenchable fire of God. This is the special fire that is able to destroy even immortal glorified bodies, okay? I think that's a lot of the significance of, of why the scriptures are emphasizing this idea of the unquenchable fire of God, okay? All right, um, point number three uh, in terms of the biblical evidence for annihilationism, the idea that death came through Adam. This is Romans um, chapter five, I believe, all right? Death came through Adam, but eternal life, right, through Jesus, okay? Death came through Adam, and the idea is this. When Adam sinned, God warned him, on the day you sin, you know, surely you will surely die, all right? But he didn't. Adam did not die on the day he sinned. He lived quite a long life, okay? Um, and I think the best way to understand this is that what happened to Adam was that when he sinned, he was ejected from the Garden of Eden, okay? When he was ejected from the Garden of Eden, what that meant is that he was doomed to die because the only way he could live forever was to continue to eat from the tree of life. If he had continued to live in the garden and to eat from the tree of life, he would have not have died. But because he was not born with an immortal body, without being able to eat from the tree of life, he was doomed to death. I think that's why the scriptures talk about how death came through Adam. In ejecting humanity from the Garden of Eden and from the tree of life, right, um, they become doomed to die, right? They become mortal, right? And it's, and this is the idea that humans were not born with immortal bodies. We don't have immortal... Immortality is not innate to who we are. It has to be given to us. It has to be gifted to us, okay? And, um, you know, this is what the scriptures confirm in several places. 2 Timothy 1, 10 says, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Okay, so the idea is that we're not naturally immortal. Okay, we're given the gift of immortality, right, through the gospel, right? And that um, is different than the Hellenistic or the Greek concept that the soul of man is innately immortal, right? And I used to teach this, right? I mean, I used to teach... You know, everyone's going to live forever. I remember preaching this one time, you know, when I was a young pastor. I remember preaching, everyone's going to live forever. The only question is where you're going to live, right? Are you going to live in heaven forever or are you going to live in hell forever? Okay? What I didn't understand at the time is that that was actually not a Jewish paradigm. That was a Greek paradigm. That was actually Platonic influence passed down for thousands of years in Christianity, right? Um... I didn't understand that, but I think the scriptures actually make much better sense when we understand that Adam's sin caused the, the, the doom of humanity, meaning every mortal was now condemned to die, right, because they're not in the Garden of Eden anymore, but now through the gospel, immortality, right, has been brought to, brought to life, and it's not the same kind of immortality, meaning we, it's not just that we can eat from the tree of life forever, but now we're actually being promised the same bodies that angels have, okay? The same immortal glorified bodies that are not prone to death because they don't eat enough or because they get sick and all this kind of stuff. Again, this is what 1 Corinthians chapter 15 
talks about these are the kind of bodies that are now promised to us when Christ raises us from the dead. Okay, if we're in Christ, we get those immortal glorified bodies. Okay, again, I think the idea here is that that's what the scriptures are really emphasizing, the difference between dying forever and now receiving an immortal glorified body where you can live forever. Okay, I think that, I think that makes sense of a lot of these scriptures. Okay, okay, so these are some of the stronger arguments for the annihilation paradigm. Now, as I said, I think if we didn't have the handful of verses that seem to suggest eternal torment, I think we'd all naturally be annihilationists. It just makes much better sense out of those passages, although any of those passages could be interpreted as being eternal torment. It's possible that that's what they mean, okay? So, like I said, I'm not ta- I'm not saying that these any of those passages I read immediately disqualify eternal torment. No, we're talking about what's more likely here, okay? What's the... what's likely, um, what's more likely in terms of the best way to interpret these passages, okay? And so to do that, what we have to do is we have to deal with these handful of scriptures that really talk about, or seem to imply, that the the torment will be eternal, okay? All right, so the the major ones that we have to talk about are in Revelation, um, but we'll start with some of what Jesus said, because Jesus uses a phrase that often gets interpreted as eternal torment, okay? And that's the idea that the wicked will go to hell and where there will be, where they will suffer the worm that does not die and the fire that is not quenched. Now, we already talked a little bit about the fire that is not quenched, um, but what I want to do now is go into Isaiah because in Isaiah, this is actually where Jesus is quoting that from, okay? And this is the problem. A lot of Christians don't know that a lot of these New Testament authors are actually quoting from the Old Testament. And that's because they're referencing that passage. So you really have to go back to that passage and understand it in its context, right, to understand what they're referencing. And this is, I think, one of the the, the main reasons for error in Christian theology is that we assume that we can interpret those passages without understanding the Old Testament context. And I think that results in a lot of faulty interpretation, okay? So this idea of the worm that does not die and the fire that is not quenched, this is from Isaiah, okay? In particular, it's Isaiah 66. And um, the idea here is that there's this battle and those that oppose the Lord are killed, all right? And what happens to them is worms eat their bodies completely, until there's no trace of them anymore. That is what Isaiah 66 is depicting. I'm going to read it. It says this, And they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched. And they will be loathsome to all mankind. Okay, that's Isaiah 66. All right. Again, the context here is people rebel against God. They're killed and then worms come and eat them completely, and fire burns them completely. And again, the worms in the fire are illustrations of there being nothing left of them. That's what Isaiah 66 is depicting. And so when Jesus uses that terminology of the worm that doesn't die and the fire that's not quenched, that's what he's referencing, okay? The idea that they will be gone from existence forever, okay? That they'll be annihilated completely, all right, I think that's a much better interpretation of those passages than the idea that that's often popular in you know Christian thought, which is like you're in hell and you're being burnt, you're burning forever, so you have this pain 
from the fire, and then you have these worms like burrowing through your body because the worms never die and they're constantly tormenting you. Okay, that's the picture that we get from medieval Catholicism. Right? That, that, that's some of those depictions that have carried on until today. All right, I don't think that's a good interpretation. All right, I, I think that's much less likely. Okay, and now we have the the major counters. Okay, which are both from Revelation, Revelations chapter fourteen and Revelation chapter twenty. Okay, and this is Revelations fourteen um, around verse nine. It says this: If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of His wrath, and they will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image, or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. Okay, so I remember when I first was studying this issue, um, I read all these different passages, and then I read I read this one, and I was like, wow, that it's like just based off that one passage alone, it seems like eternal torment is more likely, because that verse really seems to be describing eternal torment. Okay. Um, I will say that, yeah, I think this is the strongest argument. The strongest biblical argument for eternal torment is Revelations 14 here. Okay. And that's because it, it depicts people, those who take the mark of the beast, right? That they are tormented with burning self sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in its image. Right. And I'm like, well, that looks like a pretty clear picture of eternal torment. It's hard to get away from that one, okay? Um, having studied this issue multiple times now, I actually don't think that uh, this verse is as ironclad as it once was. And again, I do th- think it's still you know, a strong argument for eternal torment, okay? I just don't think it's ironclad, okay? I don't think it's, it's, it's not overwhelming evidence for sure, okay? Um, there's a couple different reasons. First of all, that phrase, forever and ever, Okay, what we need to understand is that is a very debatable interpretation. Okay, it doesn't necessarily have to mean forever and ever. There's several different ways that that phrase can be translated. Um, and in particular, it can mean ages upon ages, right? For generations or generations. Okay, so there's a number of different ways that that could be translated. It's the translator's choice to use the language of forever and ever. And um, there's many scriptures that use that term forever and ever or ages upon ages, and that are translated differently in other passages. And again, one thing we have to understand about, you know, Revelation in particular, Revelation quotes the Old Testament probably more than any other book in terms of, you know, how many words out of Revelation are references or quotations from the Old Testament. It has a higher percentage than maybe any other book in the New Testament. It's probably the highest, okay? So my point is this, again, what passage is he referencing? Okay, and it's pretty clear what the author of Revelation, John, is is referencing here. He's referencing Isaiah 34. Okay, this language is used in Isaiah 34. It's almost direct quotation. Okay, so I would argue if you're going to understand this passage, you got to go back to Isaiah 34. And what Isaiah 34 describes is the judgment of Edom. Okay, um, Edom is um, the nation that came from the descendants of Esau. And there was a judgment because they betrayed Israel, okay? And so the judgment of Edom has already happened, okay? Has already happened. Now, there is an argument that 
the judgment of Edom that already happened is just a, a first fulfillment of this, and then there's going to be an ultimate fulfillment. Okay, I think that's a possible interpretation of, of you know how this could apply to the future and be a more literal lake of fire and all this kind of stuff. Okay, um, but my point here is I think we should understand how Isaiah uses some of this language. Okay, in Isaiah 34. So I'm going to read the relevant um, section of it here. Okay, in verse 8 it says this, For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of retribution, to uphold Zion's cause. Edom's streams will be turned into pitch, her dust into burning sulfur, her land will become blazing pitch. It will not be quenched night or day, its smoke will rise forever. From generation to generation it will lie desolate, no one will ever pass through it again. Okay, so that's that's the judgment of Edom that the author of Revelations is referencing or quoting here. Okay, when we read Isaiah, you know, just like much prophetic language, we should understand that generally there's many things in prophetic and prophecy that should not be interpreted literally. Okay, this is hard because the nature of prophecy is that it's mysterious. Okay, the nature of prophecy is that it's mysterious, and you're not sure which parts you're supposed to interpret literally, which are, are symbolic, what's figurative. You're not sure. All right, prophetic, all right, prophetic passages in the Bible are the hardest to interpret, and I think that's intentionally so. Okay, My own convictions when it comes to prophetic literature is that the nature of prophecy is that it's, it's locked, meaning the full understanding of, of prophecy in the Bible is locked so that you're not supposed to be able to fully understand it until it comes to pass. Okay? Now, I will say that I think some people can get maybe full revelation of certain passages. You know, I think it's possible. But I think the general idea is that the general understanding of prophecy in the Bible is not really fully understood until it comes to pass. And then you can see all the ways that it fits together. Okay? And um, the example, one of the examples I use for that is you know, there was debate in, in ancient Jewish culture as to whether there would be two messiahs because there really seems to be two streams of messianic prophecy, right? There's talk about a messiah that suffers for the sins of, of, of the world, right? And that's Isaiah 53 typifies that, the suffering servant. A lot of the latter half of Isaiah has prophecies about the suffering servant. And then you have prophecies like Psalm 2, which talk about the conquering king, the messiah who's going to come and rule the nations with a rod of iron, right? And crush everyone who stands in his way. And so there was like this debate in the ancient Jewish world about, are there going to be two messiahs? Because there seems like there's the Messiah, son of David, that conquers, the conquering king. And then there's the Messiah, son of Joseph, who suffers for the sake of sin. And there was a lot of debate on this. I don't, I never heard, or I never saw any evidence that there was a, a well-recognized theory that it's one Messiah that comes twice. Like, how could anybody get that? I, that's like impossible, right? Like, I know how to interpret all these prophecies. There's going to be a Messiah who comes twice, <laughs> two th- with 2,000 years at least in between, right? And that's that's the actual interpretation, right? Like, in Jesus' first coming, he fulfilled the suffering servant prophecies, and then when he comes again, he's going to fulfill the conquering king messianic prophecies, okay? I just give that as an example. It's like so hard to properly interpret prophecy, okay? Okay. Um, but when we're talking about this passage from Isaiah 34, it's really this idea that Edom is destroyed by the fire of God, all right? And and then what happens? It it's, you know, the fire, the burning sulfur will not be quenched day or night. Its smoke will rise forever. What does that mean in this context? It means that everyone will remember what God did, 
Okay, everyone will remember what God did to Edom. Okay, that's the idea. And again, if I had to guess, because most humans have forgotten, <laughs> very few humans remember the judgment of Edom. So who's it talking about? It's talking about heavenly beings, would be my guess. All right, the heavenly beings remember forever what happened to Edom. Okay, I think their memories are probably much better than ours. Okay, that's just a little side thing, a little guess of mine. Okay, but again, from generation to generation, it will lie desolate. No one will pass ever pass through it again. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I don't think there's a little patch of Syria, you know, modern-day Syria, <laughs> that no one has ever walked through again. You know, like, this is, the, this is the danger of interpreting prophetic language literally, right? I don't think it's intended to be interpreted literally, okay? I do think the, pro, the pro, most probable interpretation is that the judgment of Edom was so bad that it became, you know, desolate, and for generation upon generation for ages and ages nobody dwelt in that land something like that and i think that's consistent with what it's speaking of okay again in in scripture that language of forever and ever gets used a lot in a number especially in prophetic places and rarely should it be interpreted actually as forever and ever that's the literal english you know way that we interpret that um but look it gets used a lot in a lot of prophetic language and I think the danger here is when we look at a passage like Revelation 14, which is utilizing a lot of Old Testament prophecy, and we interpret it literally when we wouldn't necessarily do that with Isaiah 34, the, the very passage that's quoting from, I think that's where the danger is, okay? The other idea is just us building theology off of Revelation. Like I said, the strongest passages for eternal torment are Revelations 14 and Revelations 20, which I'm about to get to. Both of these passages are in Revelation, and again, both of them are quoting from the Old Testament, all right? So, I just think it's, like, there's almost no other area of theology, of major doctrine, that we find in Revelation. Like, Revelation is the major proof text for it, and then we go back and reinterpret other portions of Scripture through what is being revealed most clearly in Revelation, does that make sense? We don't do that with almost any other doctrine. And again, that's because Revelation is probably the hardest book in the Bible to interpret correctly. Okay, it's very, very difficult. <laughs> There's so many interpretations of so many parts of Revelation. I just think it's I just think the general rule of thumb is we don't build doctrine primarily off of Revelation. Okay? And obviously I understand most people who hold to eternal torment would say, Well, I'm not building it primarily off of Revelation. I'm I see it in in all these other passages. But my encouragement would be but those other passages actually make better sense being interpreted as annihilationism, generally speaking. It's really the Revelation passages that look the most like eternal torment and the least like annihilation. And that's what we're, we're really doing. It's really church history. It's really church tradition that has passed down this interpretation. And we've grown up interpreting these, these passages in a certain way. And so it's hard to take a fresh look at some of these passages. Um, I get that. Okay. All right. The last passage is Revelations 20. And verse 10 says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay. So, um, this one is less convincing to me than Revelations 14, because it's not talking about people. It's talking about the devil. Okay. Um, it's talking about the fallen angels being thrown in there. And... The, the bigger problem, though, with Revelation 20 is that when you get to the end, it talks about how, um, in verse 14, it says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death 
the lake of fire. Death in Hades. Hades is, is hell. <laughs> hell is thrown into the lake of fire. You get it? Like, you know, unless we're going to talk about how death is personified, which there is an actual argument for this, okay? Maybe death is a, an angel who is, is personified as death, but they represent death, and that angel is thrown to the lake of fire. And maybe there's, a, you know, an angel that represents hell, maybe the custodian of hell or something like that. But then you have to make the argument that it's different from the devil, because it already talked about him being thrown in, and this is later. So this is now maybe a different spiritual being that's thrown to the lake of fire. That is a possible interpretation of this passage. I just think it's less likely, okay? I think what this is talking about um, is that the lake of fire, my best guess is that the lake of fire is symbolic. And by the way, we should understand the lake of fire um, is, is, is not originally found in Revelation. It's actually found in the book of Enoch. Okay, the book of Enoch is a non-canonical work that was actually very popular in the early church. Um, and um, Jude quotes from it. Peter quotes from um, the book of First Enoch. And it's in First Enoch where we see the lake of fire. All right, that's and then Revelation is now referencing really what's what's from First Enoch. Okay, and the idea here, I think, the better interpretation here is the lake of fire is symbolic. Okay, it represents something. Just like I think much of prophetic language is representational. Okay, and so the lake of fire represents something, and these beings are thrown into it. And my best guess is that the lake of fire represents annihilation. Okay, that when these beings are thrown into it, they are tormented for a period of time, and then they are completely consumed in the lake of fire. And the significance of the fire, like I said earlier, is that it can destroy even immortal glorified bodies that the devil has, that the angels have, that it's able to completely destroy those bodies. Okay? I think that's that's the significance there. And again, because we have this idea that's not just in Revelation, but this idea throughout the Bible, and we see in multiple places in the New Testament, that death itself is destroyed. Okay, so for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about, um, verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Okay, so this idea that death itself is destroyed, okay, that is a biblical idea. That's the final state. There is no more death, and I think that makes perfect sense if death is thrown into the lake of fire, death is destroyed in the lake of fire. And so is hell, because hell is the intermediate state. Hades, the underworld, the place, you know, in between, right, until the resurrection of the dead comes, until the final judgment. That place is also destroyed. Sheol, in the Old Testament, is destroyed in the lake of fire. That fits other doctrines in the Bible, it fits other passages, and it makes pretty good sense. I think it's actually harder to explain this passage by saying that death and Hades are like beings of some sort, you know, like angels that represent those things, and then they're thrown into like a fire to be tormented forever, okay? That is a possible interpretation. It's possible that that's right. I just think it seems less likely to me, right? It seems more likely that lake of fire represents annihilation, and that death and Hades are thrown in, okay? at the end. I think that makes pretty good sense. That's why I don't think Revelations 14 and 20 are ironclad evidence. Again, I do think they are the strongest evidence in the Bible for the eternal torment position, but I don't think the evidence is that strong, okay? It seems more likely to me that the annihilationist um, interpretation of these various passages, it makes more sense, which is why I say I think the biblical argument for annihilationism is actually stronger than for eternal torment, okay? 
Now, as I said before, I'm very open. I'm, I consider myself in the middle of an investigation into all of these things. So if you have arguments that I've not considered, and obviously I didn't bring up all the arguments here, just some of the ones I thought were the more important, more prominent ones. But if you have arguments that I have not considered, I would encourage you, send them to me, let me know. I'm eager to, to learn in this area. And if you're down for a discussion on this, let me know, because we are planning to do some some roundtable theological discussions, okay? Um, one thing that I, you know, forgot to say is, you know, Francis Chan, I mentioned before, he he wrote a book called Erasing Hell, and the purpose of that book was because he was really concerned about universalism. He was really concerned about the doctrine of universalism and how so many churches were starting to diminish um, hell, right, by essentially implying or outright teaching that everyone's going to go to heaven, Okay. So he wrote that book. He wrote it with. He wrote that book with another um, a person named Glenn Peoples. Okay, and Glenn Peoples is 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 the guy with the PhD. So he was the real theologian amongst the uh, between them. In the course of their studies for the book, um, Glenn Peoples became actually convinced that annihilationism had an extremely strong argument. Today, Glenn Peoples is an annihilationist. So Francis Chan's co-author on you know, the issue of hell, the writing a book called Erasing Hell, um, they were, he was actually persuaded by the evidence that annihilationism has the stronger argument, okay? Um, I say that because I do think that if you seriously investigate this issue and study these, you know, objectively, I do think a lot of people will be convinced that the biblical evidence is actually stronger, okay? All right, now what I want to do is I want to get into the rational argument, Um the rational argument is actually very important to me. Meaning, does hell make sense? Okay, do does our understanding of hell make sense? Does does it seem just and fair to us? And I already established at the beginning that the biblical argument is more important than the rational argument. Okay, but to me, if those things don't align for you, meaning that you're convinced the Bible says one thing, but you're not convinced of of why that's good or just or righteous, to me, um, that there's a problem there right? A, a mature faith is one where we're convinced the Bible says this, and I can see how it's really good. And I already established how um, it's it's healthy for all of us to go through times where we have to trust the Bible. Like, hey, I don't see why that's good, but I'm going to trust the scriptures. I think that's healthy, and that's a part of growth for all of us. But my point is, I think we should be pursuing a mature faith where we can say, hey, I, this is what the Bible says, and let me tell you about why that's right and why that's good. That, to me, is maturity, okay? And so I think it's a problem that almost nobody feels like the doctrine of eternal torment is right, is righteous. Okay, and again, I know there's that 1%. You know, I do have some friends that are like, it's completely good. But I think they're, I think they're deceiving themselves, honestly. I think they're deceiving themselves, and I understand why. I totally understand why. Because... The nature of what it means to trust the Lord and to trust Scripture is that we try and train our beliefs around Scripture, not the other way around. So I understand why people, you know, are tying them in their their theology in pretzels, you know, and their logic in, in, in knots, trying to make it make sense. But I, I think if we're just really honest with ourselves, the doctrine of eternal torment does not make good logical sense, Okay. It doesn't fit anyone's idea of justice, okay? And one of the exercises that I use to kind of demonstrate this is um, is this. Like, imagine, imagine that you were the king of the world, all right? Imagine if you were the king of the world 
after World War II, right? And they captured Hitler. You know, in real life, Hitler committed suicide. But let's say, you know, in this hypothetical, you know, thought exercise, that they captured Hitler and they brought him before you. And it was your job to mete out the appropriate punishment for Hitler. Okay? Like, you're the king of the world. It's all up to you. You decide what the appropriate punishment for Hitler is. Okay? And my question is, okay, what? how would you punish Hitler? I mean, honestly, just take a, just take a couple of seconds to think about it. What do you think an appropriate punishment for Hitler would be? And Hitler, you know, obviously the reason I'm using him is because he's probably the most agreed upon evil person in history, like one of the most evil people in history. By any standard, he was about as evil as it gets. Okay? So what is the appropriate punishment for him? If I'm if I'm the king of the world, I'm like, you know, I, I, I think I'd probably just execute him. I don't know, I don't know if that's the best thing, obviously, right? I'm in humility, right? But I'm just saying if, if I was king of the world, I would probably just execute him. Okay? Now there's a lot of people, a lot of Christians, that would not even go that far. They would go no, I, I, we're going to imprison him, okay? Um, maybe try to rehabilitate him, which I think there's some nobility to that idea. Um, I would execute him. I think he, he merits execution. Now, some people might argue, you know what? He, execution is too good for him. He deserves torture. He deserves to be tortured. I think there's a strong argument for that. Okay. I mean, how much torture you know, should we put him through? Because, you know, I think maybe some people would say, yeah, he deserves... A, a day of torture, 24 hours of torture, like torture Hitler. I would I would say, say this, like it's it's one thing to say, send him to the torturers and let him be tortured for 24 hours. That's one thing, and it's another thing to, like, to do the torture yourself. Like, could you really torture someone even as evil as Hitler for 24 hours if you were the one who had to do the torture? I don't think anyone, of, I don't think any of us could. I don't think any of us could. And that's and that's twenty four hours, let alone a week of torture. Oh, it's un, like it's unimaginable if you actually think about doing it. Like if you if it's not just a thought exercise and you could just brush it off as saying like make it academic and hypothetical. Yeah, a week of torture. No, but you actually sit down and really think through what that would entail. Like I've seen an animal killed before. Okay, I went to um, I went on a missions trip where one of my staff guys had to had to kill a sheep and. And it was horrific. He had to do it with a, a a knife and carve through the sheep's neck. Okay, like I'm I'm sorry to say that because I know that it's it's gross, but that's my point here. Like just thinking about killing some an animal as quick as possible with a knife is so horrific to think about. And I was there. I almost threw up. I was telling our our kids, "Hey, you you can't you know show any signs of disgust because this is an honor. They're they're slaughtering a sheep for us." Right, but I almost threw up. I, mean, I was like, I got, I, I got sick watching this. Right, and that's about the 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 smallest, shortest torture that you could give an animal. I can't imagine torturing a person that I can empathize with for any significant amount of time. And yet, what we're saying here is that God does this to everyone. You know, almost everyone. You know, almost everyone who's ever lived is going to be tortured, not just for a day, even if it was a day of torture. If we really sat down and thought about it, that's horrific. That That's so terrible. We're talking about an eternity of torture, which the problem with eternity is that it's li- we literally can't comprehend it, okay? The problem with eternity is that, you know, no matter how big a number you put on it, 
you know, one billion years. We can't even comprehend one billion years, right? We live for a hundred years at most. Okay, you can't comprehend a billion years. But if you could, that's that's a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. Like, if your actual sentence was eternity of torture, and it was shortened to a billion years, it would be the most wonderful thing that could ever happen to you. <laughs> you know, like that's how that's how incredible eternal is. You know, like an eternal torture is on a completely different level. And and my only point here is that this level of punishment is so beyond any any person's sense of right or wrong. The only way we can argue for this is if we keep it in the abstract. That's the only way. The only way we can argue for this is if we don't think too much about it and we just go hypothetically or academically, yes, eternity of torture makes sense. But my point is, in reality, nobody actually thinks this is fair. No one. I don't, you know, like I said, I think a, a, a one percentage of Christians can just turn off the actual horror of it and just keep it on an academic level and say, yes, I think that's completely fair, okay? But I think you guys know what I'm talking about because, again, w- when I listen to people's deconstruction stories about why they're leaving the faith, hell gets brought up again and again and again as being something that just is so ridiculous. Like, the only way you could believe this is if you're indoctrinated from a young age to believe this. But when you actually allow yourself to question its actual rational validity. Like, is this rational? Is this reasonable? Nobody thinks it's reasonable. So that's just point number one, okay? The logical evidence for eternal torment, I think is really weak. Again, it doesn't fit anybody's sense of proper punishment, okay? The second argument, what happens to children who never hear the gospel? Or what happens to children who die without being saved? And what happens to people who never hear the gospel? This is, again, as a pastor, this is one of the questions that I get asked more than any other question. Because Christians wrestle with it. There's, and what that says is that they're not getting answers that they're satisfied with. Okay? They're not getting answers they're satisfied with. All right? What happens to people who never hear the gospel, they never had a chance to be saved? The fair punishment for them is that they be tortured forever. Nobody thinks that's fair. Nobody thinks that's fair. Okay? So what we've done is we've created some extra theologies that the Bible doesn't talk about to try and make sense of this. Right? One of them is the age of accountability. There's nothing in the Bible that, that, that explicitly says anything about an age of accountability. Age of accountability is a hope. <laughs> right? It's like a, we hope that there's some kind of age of accountability. But it doesn't really make sense. Because again, the idea is that our sinful natures pass through us in Adam. Okay? So, you know, we can't help but sin in our lives, which is why the rightful punishment for this sin in the eternal perspective of torment is eternal torment. That's the rightful punishment for the sin that we commit. Okay, That's what we deserve. And the only way to get away from that is to receive Christ's sacrifice on the cross um, through faith. And children can't do that because they can't understand. Or what about aborted babies? Like, what do you do with aborted babies? And so we create this doctrine of age of accountability. Now, I'm not going to say there's there's no hope of that in the scriptures. We do see some, you know, depictions of something that could be like that. Like one of the examples that gets used is, um, you know, the Israelites in the Exodus, right? 
the generation of Israelites in the wilderness, you know, they complain to God. They say, I want to go back to Egypt. And so God said, the punishment, the judgment is that they're not allowed to enter into the promised land. Okay. But he makes an exception. He says, like, those who are 20 years old and older, they will not enter into the promised land. But those who are 20 years old and younger, they can enter in. All right. That's the judgment. And so people take some passages like that and they go, well, maybe the same principle applies to judgment, right? And and that's where you get this hope, like, well, if somebody is, you know, below 20, you know, and obviously different denominations and teachers put that number at different places, right? Maybe someone's below 13 or something like that, before they know right and wrong, you know, then maybe, maybe all those people go to heaven. And there's a huge flaw with this argument, okay? Because if that's true, right? If that's true, that all 13 and under people or whatever age you put, you can put any age there, they all go to heaven, then really Christians should not be against abortion, right? We should be trying to abort every baby we can, right? If that's true, and some people make that argument for people who've never heard the gospel, they all go to heaven. Now that's a really bad argument, okay? Because in particular, Romans 10, um, Paul says, how can they be saved if they have not heard? How can they hear unless you go? So he explicitly makes the case that that cannot possibly be true. You cannot be saved if you don't hear the gospel, right? That's and because the whole motivation there is that's why you have to go, right? You have to go so that people can be saved because if they don't, if you don't go, they won't hear and then they cannot be saved, right? So there's no good biblical argument for the idea that people have never heard the gospel. They're all saved, Okay. And and to be fair, there's very few people that teach that. That's more along the 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 idea of universalism, okay. But the principle is the same, okay. The principle is the same, um, or it's very similar, I should say. And my only point is this: that's a t- like we should be aborting every single baby if age of accountability is true. Man, we should be aborting every baby. We should become mass murderers of children, <laughs> you know, like because w- how many souls are we saving? <laughs> Right, like we're saving so many souls, you know, like we're we're keeping them from hell. I know, from you know, logically speaking, you know, if my kid is like about you know twelve, which I do have a twelve-year-old, you know, and he doesn't look like you know he looks like he might not receive the gospel, you know, the the safest thing to do would be to kill him before they you know get close, you know, and obviously I, this is very macabre and <laughs> and, and gross. And but my point is this: this is a, a major logical inconsistency with this idea. Okay, no, I think what the Bible, it what makes much better sense is that there is no hope of salvation. You cannot be saved unless you receive the gospel. All right, and that's really hard because then you have to assume that all of these children and these babies who are aborted and all these people who never heard the gospel, they're all going to be tormented in hell forever, and that doesn't seem fair to anybody. But you can't get away from it. And the best argument, I think, is for annihilationism, right? The idea that all these people are annihilated. I think that makes much better sense. Because then the idea is that this this is what annihilationism does. It restores, you know, the hope of eternal life. That's the gospel, right? Like, the gospel is gives us the hope of eternal life. This, this is the problem with the way we preach the gospel today. When we preach the gospel, most people don't want to hear it. You know, if you go to the average person in America, and you go, hey, can I talk to you about the good news of Jesus? They don't want to hear it. Why do they not want to hear it? Because our good news is actually not good news. It's actually bad news, 
right? Because the central thing that we're giving to people when we preach the gospel to them is the news that they're going to hell. <laughs> That's the primary news we're giving to them, right? The primary news is, hey, you're going to hell and you're going to be tormented forever unless you do this thing. That's why people don't want to hear it. It's not good news, all right? When people get the gospel preached to them, it's not good news because the primary message we have to establish is hell. If hell's not true, then the rest of it doesn't matter. That's the way we tend to think of it and teach it. If they don't believe in eternal torment, then they they don't need to accept the gospel, right? So the way we train all of our people is to teach hell first, right? Establish hell, why they deserve eternal torment. And then we offer them the real good news, right? Which is that Jesus died for their sins and they can go to heaven, Okay. But my point is, as a package, right? If we're just like, here's the package that we're giving to people. Generally speaking, people don't want that package because it's not hope. It's it's fear-inducing. It makes better sense to me if the gospel is good news because it's the hope of eternal life. There's a hope that you can live forever. And, and that's what I think annihilationism could do. It could restore the center of the gospel Right to be the hope of eternal life, which I think is actually how it's preached in the New Testament. Right, it it restores that hope. Right, there's hope of eternal life, but there's still a recognition that I have to repent of sin to receive Christ's Lord, because He's the only one with the power to raise us from the dead and give us eternal life. Okay, I think that I think that makes sense. Okay, I think it makes better logical sense. All right, a couple counters to some of this rational argument, okay, which is church tradition, okay? As, as I said at the very beginning of this podcast episode, you know, the majority position of the church is that um, eternal torment is the doctrine taught from the Bible. I think this is the overall strongest argument for the doctrine of eternal torment. Like, could would God or could God have let the church be deceived on this issue that's so important for so long? Okay, now I should be clear. There, there, it is debatable um, how many church fathers believed in eternal eternal torment versus annihilationism. It's not clear. It seems like most of the church leaders early on started to accept the eternal torment position, um, but there are a number of works that seem to suggest that a number of the early church fathers did believe in annihilationism. But the point still is that. Man, that's a long time for the church to be deceived on such an important doctrine. And I get that. I would simply say, as a counter to that counter, we've already seen that type of thing happen. I would simply say this. If you're a Protestant, generally speaking, most Protestants believe that the gospel is the theory of atonement that we call penal substitution. That penal substitution is the gospel right? A lot of Christians today would basically equate the two. Like, if you ask them what the gospel, they're going to give you the theory of penal substitution, right? And I've, I've already done a podcast episode on this, on, on why I do think the theory of penal substitution is true. But my only point is, is that that theory wasn't really solidified until the 16th century. That's 1,500 years where penal substitution was not clearly understood as being central to Christianity, all right? And, um, that's a long time. So <laughs> I would simply say, like, if you're a Protestant, yeah, I think you should have some understanding that we as a church can be wrong about some major things, um, and God can allow that, you know? So 
I, I think that's possible. I think it's possible. And I think it fits what Paul spoke about again in Romans 11, that if we as Gentiles grow arrogant against um, the Jewish branches, that God will cut us off. That's what he, that's what is threatened against Gentile believers in Romans 11. I think that's largely what happened. I think that's why we went through a dark age. I think that's why God has allowed so much bad stuff to happen to the church. I think it's a kind of curse that God has allowed against us because of our sin. All right? And um, I think this could be another example of that, right? Because it, it fits. It fits, right? This is largely a Gentile, a Greek understanding that we have injected into the scriptures if annihilationism is true, okay? All right, the last counter um, to the logical evidence for annihilationism is that um, what it does is it it destroys the main thing that leads people to Jesus, which is it, it takes away their fear of hell, right? Meaning the way most people, the way most people, the way that this argument goes is that the way most people um come to believe in Jesus and give them their life is that they don't want to go to hell. They're afraid of hell, right? So when we preach the fear of hell, that is what draws people into the kingdom and get and, and they get eternal life. And that's the way it's supposed to be, right? Um, and I do think there's an argument there, okay? There is an argument there. Um, but I would also simply say this. I think it also does a ton of damage too if we're wrong on this issue, okay? If, eternal, if the eternal torment position is wrong, um, I think it it's safe to say it's done a lot of damage, meaning there's a lot of people who will not even really seriously consider Christianity because of the doctrine of eternal torment, right? There's a lot of people who who fall away from the Lord. Like I said, in all of the, these deconstruction stories, a lot of them cite eternal torment as being part of what drove them away from the faith. It's a hard one. Like the argument we use is, you know, judgment is offensive to people. It's because they love their sin, and that's why. They don't want to be, you know, they don't want to hear about God's judgment about their sin, which is, that's a biblical principle for sure, right? The problem is, what if we're misrepresenting the judgment of God? And this is what I'm concerned about. This is what I'm very concerned about, all right? What if we've been wrong as a church for thousands of years, okay? And I, I want us to, like, you have to do this thought exercise, if the church has been wrong in this issue, then what we've done is we have portrayed God as far harsher than he actually is. And look, I talk about judgment a lot. I emphasize how important it is to emphasize judgment. I think judgment is essential, and I warn Christians all the time not to minimize the judgment of God. And obviously, a lot of people are not, are, are going to look at this type of a talk and be like, that's exactly what you're doing. You're minimizing judgment. And it's possible. Okay, it's possible. Um, we're all going to have to stand before the Lord. But I don't, think it's, I, I don't think it's wrong to really investigate what the scriptures are saying about this. And this is what I'm concerned about. If we've been wrong on this issue, that means we've really been misrepresenting the Lord in a way that, um, like I said, I don't know, I don't know any person that would torture Hitler for, you know, a week. I don't think anyone that I know would actually do that. And that's Hitler. We're talking about a God that would torture, you know, babies for eternity. Not just for a week, for eternity. And we're proclaiming that this is the God that we must follow and that it's good. And and at, even as we're doing that, we acknowledge amongst ourselves that it doesn't seem fair to us. There's a disconnect here. There is some kind of disconnect. 
And hear me, I've been praying for years, Lord, help me to see the goodness of this doctrine, right? Because for most of my life, I was a committed, you know, eternal torment preacher, okay? For most of my life, you know, my Christian life, I was. Now I'm I'm not sure on this issue. And I, and I, and I prayed, Lord, help me to understand your goodness here. How is this good? I, I never got to a place where it seemed like good to me. It always seemed like one of those things, like, I don't know why. This is this is an appropriate punishment, but I do know the Lord. Like I I know that He really is loving and He really is fair, and so I just trusted that you know in time, you know maybe there's a piece of this we're not seeing and we'll see it when we're in heaven or something like that. I don't know, okay. But if we've been wrong, then we've been misrepresenting the Lord in a serious way. We've terrorized people. <laughs> I know so many people that that live in this deep anxiety of going to hell, you know? And look, I've done a lot of teaching on, like, control. I can tell you, like, this, if we're wrong in this, then we're guilty of serious control. If we're wrong in this issue, we're guilty of serious control because this is exactly how control works. It uses these kinds of incredible, you know, fears. It tries to instill that kind of fear in people. You know, like, if you if you don't do this thing that I want you to do, this terrible, terrible thing is going to happen to you. And it fills them with anxiety and fear. And controlling leaders use that to control people, to get them to do what they want. And, like, I, I understand why so many people who have left the church are like, I it's better for me. My life is better now than it was when I was a Christian because I, I lived under this incredible fear and, you know, anxiety. And I and I tried to put that on other people. And I totally get that. Like, yeah, it, there's a sense in which for me right now, like, and for, for all Christians, hell is more academic than real. Because like I said, I don't know anybody that that believes that eternal torment is a fair punishment. So if I don't if we don't believe it's a fair punishment, but we feel compelled to preach it and to teach it and to emphasize it to everybody else, there's there's a disconnect here, right? That's pretty serious. I just fear that if we're wrong on this issue, we've alienated so many people that could have known the Lord and not live with crazy anxiety. You know, and to be clear, I think if you hold to eternal torment, I do not think you need to have crazy anxiety. I don't I don't think you should live in crazy anxiety, but I definitely understand why this teaching engenders that kind of um feelings in a lot of people. I totally understand why. Um especially, you know, especially when people think about, you know, their their family members and because I want to end on a hopeful note. Because I just, man, just thinking about the realities of hell, like eternal torment, like really thinking about that, it really makes me so sad because it could be true also, right? Like it could be possible. Okay, my hopeful note is simply this, that all of us in this age see through a glass darkly or dimly, right? Meaning we know in part, we see in part, we prophesy in part, we don't understand everything. And so obviously we're trying to understand these things. Um, but at the end of the day, I think we do have to have humility and say, 
Lord, on these things that we don't fully understand, we trust in your goodness and we trust your word. And um, and I really do. I really do trust him. Even if eternal torment is true, I do trust that the Lord will show us why that's so good and will make sense to us in time. Um, but the reason why I did this podcast is because I am concerned that it may not be true. And so I think it's worth it's worth investigating. There's so many great books. There's a podcast called Rethinking Hell that you can check out. I believe the um, the person who runs it is Chris Date, and he does a good job breaking down a number of positions. Um, there's a number of books out there, like I said. John Stott has written and done some stuff on annihilationism. The only reason I, I mention him is because he's a very well respected scholar um, in evangelical circles. Um, in the past generation. And so you can check out some of the stuff that he's written. Edward Fudge has written a book called The Fire That Consumes. I believe that's the name of it, um, which is one of the, the, the most well-known books that is defending the annihilationist position. But there's so many materials online. Um, and that article by Greg Boyd is called Case for Annihilationism. Um, and you can just Google that if you want to read more. Um, those are some of the things that I would recommend. Oh, also there is a... Um, um, there's a website called www.jewishnotgreek.com. Okay. <laughs> All right. And that's, um, there's a lot of good information on this issue. There's also an article on the gospelcoalition.org called um, an, Destroyed Forever, an Examination of the Debates Concerning Annihilationism and Conditional Immortality by Tony Gray. And he does a good job kind of summarizing the main debating points. So there's all these kind of things. Again, I don't really have an agenda either way because I'm, I'm not decided. I'm more just encouraging believers um, to really investigate the issue. I think it's worthy of serious investigation. And um, I think the more that we have a robust conversation on this discussion in the body of Christ, I think it'll be better for us, whether it be to expose more of the flaws of annihilationism or it's to expose more of the flaws in the eternal torment position. Um, I think regardless, what we want is we want to be true to the Bible and what the Bible is actually saying. And so that's my encouragement. God bless you guys. Thanks for listening.